This is Africa Digest. It is 17 hours Central African time. A very good afternoon and welcome to it. It's Africa Digest here on Channel Africa, where we continue to give you news uh, from an African perspective. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in the Republic of South Africa. We are online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Luanda Maume. I am your standing host here for today. And on the show with me is Onel Nzinzi, Tracy Bumgard and Neto Chemani. Let's take a look at your top stories now. The DRC's president describes violence in the northeastern province of Ituri as attempted genocide. Government workers in Zimbabwe express anxiety over new salaries which were promised by President Emerson Nangagwa at the end of June. In economics, South African Broadcasting Corporation's financial certainty still hangs in the balance after the National Treasury reportedly rejected the public broadcaster's turnaround strategy. In a sport, Cameroon to face Nigeria in the round of 16 at the Africa Cup of Nations as it reaches the knockout stages there. Details on these and other stories as we progress with the show right now. It's a minute after five. Let's get the news. Here's Onel Nsinzi. Thank you, Leander. Sudan's protest leaders have agreed to hold direct talks with the ruling generals. This is after African Union and Ethiopian mediators urged the two sides to resume stalled negotiations about a new governing body. The Alliance for Freedom and Change met and decided to accept the invitation for direct negotiations said to must have reached consensus within 72 hours. Meanwhile, South Sudan has stepped up surveillance along its southern border after an Ebola case was detected just inside DR Congo. It is the closest Ebola known to have come to South Sudan since a major outbreak began in Congo last August. South Sudan has already declared a state of high alert and vaccinated health workers. There are screening centers at borders crossing in high-risk areas and an Ebola treatment unit and lab in the capital, Juba. The Democratic Republic of Congo's president, Felix Tshisekedi, has described violence in the northeastern province of Ituri as an attempted genocide. This, he said, as he concluded a three-day visit in that province where conflict has left more than 100 civilians killed, President Tshisekedi said he'll find out the truth about people behind the unrest. Genocide willing to push the Ituri province in fire like unfortunate events that have happened in our Great Lakes region. The aim was to try and destabilize the power of Kinshasa. It really looks like a plot and what's important now is to find out who's behind. The United Nations envoy to Libya says an airstrike that killed more than 40 people at a detention center near the capital Tripoli could constitute a war crime. Hassan Salame condemned the attack as hideous and cowardly. The victims were mainly African migrants. The Libyan government has blamed the airstrike on forces loyal to the warlord general Khalifa Haftar, who launched an offensive on Tripoli three months ago. Charlie Yaxley is the UN Refugee Agency spokesperson for Africa. In relation to this uh, incident last night, the coordinates of this detention center is well known to both sides. 
and we are hugely concerned that these detention centres may be being used to store weapons and military equipment. All parties must abide by not targeting civilians in their attack and there needs now to be an immediate investigation into who's responsible for this attack and the individuals involved to be held to account. Lastly, the suspected mastermind of last week's twin suicide bombing in Tunis was killed when he blew himself up during a police manhunt outside the capital. Police had tracked the suspect down to the working-class suburb of Intilaka, where he detonated a suicide vest on Tuesday night. The terrorist, Aime Smiri, was implicated in the twin suicide bombing on Thursday, and investigations proved that he was the mastermind of the operation. Channel Africa News, I am Onelin Zinzi. Let's say thank you very much there to Onel and Sinzi with that uh, news bulletin. It brings us to five minutes after five Central African time here on Channel Africa, where we continue to give you news from an African perspective. My name is Luanda Maume, and I'm standing in for our anchor, Samora Mangesi, who is out for the day. The Democratic Republic of Congo's president, Felix Tshisekedi, has described violence in the northeastern province of Ituri as an attempted genocide as he concluded a three-day visit in that province where inter-community conflict has left more than a hundred civilians killed, President Chisekeri said he'll find out the truth about people behind unrest. Janwal uh, Pamwenze reports. It's at least 160 civilians who have been killed last month during clashes involving militias from the Hema and Lendu communities. The violence has forced the more than 300,000 people out of their homes, especially in the Jugu territory. President Felix Chisekedi visited the Ituri from Sunday to Tuesday. As the situation is too alarming, he ordered the army to launch a large-scale operation against armed groups operating in that province of the northeastern Democratic Republic of Congo. Speaking to journalists in Bunia, the provincial capital city of Ituri, as he concluded the three-day visit, President Tisekedi described the bloodshed in that volatile province as an attempt to genocide. He vowed to find out the truth about people behind such violence. He believes it's a plot aiming to destabilize the power of Kinshasa. President Felix Tisekedi. It looks like an attempt of genocide willing to push the Ituri province in fire like unfortunate events that have happened in our Great Lakes region. The aim was to try and destabilize the power of Kinshasa. It really looks like a plot and what's important now is to find out who's behind. President Tisekedi has also announced a major military operation in the Ituri's territories of Jugu and Mahagi with the offensive extending to South Kivu province in the eastern DRC in order to put a definite end to the dozens of militias operating there. He said as well there is a plan for complete eradication of foreign armed groups. The plan is to be implemented in collaboration with the UN mission here. MONUSCO and neighboring countries affected by 
the violence and particularly Uganda and Rwanda. This is not the first time for Hema and Lendu to clash in that province. Similar violence left tens of thousands of people dead between 1999 and 2003. Clashes between the two ethnic groups displaced some 350,000 inhabitants in late 2017 and early 2018. Looking at all these bad memories, President Chisekedi has then called on the Ituri inhabitants to love one another as the province belongs to all of them and there is a room for everyone. Both communities are blaming one another of targeting each other. This leader and spokesperson of the Hema community has expressed the hope and believes President Chisekedi being on top of everybody will bring back a state of law in the Ituri province. Victor Ngona. What we expect from the president as the stand security for the nation is rehabilitation of the state authority here in Ituri and especially in Jugu. The problem is this negative force made of land militias in majority, but I believe will have positive results. And according to this community leader from the Lendu group, what's needed here to try and bring a sustainable solution is for both communities to sit and talk instead of accusing each other. They have to find out the criminals and bring them to face the law. Jean-Marie Sansa is the deputy president of the Lendu community. They are criminals and must be dealt with as such. A community doesn't have to accuse another for that and this is really irresponsible regarding the Hema community. Criminals are criminals and the state must take its responsibilities. And indeed, last month, the UN High Commission for Refugees, well known as UNHCR, voiced the deep concern of a massive displacement and reported multiple attacks involving the Hema and Lendu communities in that province of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. That report by Janel Pamwenze brings us to 10 minutes after 5 Central African time here on Channel Africa, where we continue to give you news from an African perspective. My name is Luanda Maume. Now, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa is expected to weigh in on the continuing Southern African Development Community mediation for constitutional reforms in Lesotho when he visits that country on Thursday. Lesotho has been going through constitutional and security sector reform since 2015 following alleged coups and the killing of two army commanders. But the Mountain Kingdom is once again facing political instability as Prime Minister Tom Tabane's Olbasutu Convention Party grapples with a split that could lead him to stepping down or the collapse of the coalition government. Tsikwani Peshwani is the Director of Transformation of the Resource Centre in Lesotho. Let me start here. The reforms and now you have completed the public industry consultation. So if you remember, there was a plenary session, a plenary session which actually identified issues which uh, the country or the, the, the people were, need to, to discuss and come up with their, with their perspectives. And those issues that have been identified were taken to the, to the public industry consultation. So the plenary one was done under the facilitation of President Ramaphosa, and as well, in his, uh, his uh, assistant, the facilitator, Justice Masoni. The plenary one was done quite successfully, and the industry consultation was also completed. The only thing that is remaining with, uh, with, with that process is that the report of industry consultation is still, is still under softening. The third stage is a plenary two, 
The plenary two is expected to be between July and August. So we, we expect that the, the coming of the President Ramaphosa will assist in putting down the date or the date for, for the plenary two. The plenary two is actually one that is going to reflect on the issues that were captured during public industry consultations. So now we are at a stage where the Society Organization uh, and the National Dialogue Planning Committee are still consolidating that report for, for plenary two. What challenges does the government face in implementing the SADC reforms? Because uh, we thought by now they should have been implemented completely. I think the, 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 the major challenge of government now is one, the government is now facing the challenge of stability and cohesion. Because if you are aware, the majority party in government has now been, I think, is now experiencing a serious uh, political, uh, functional politics where there are two, the, 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 the two groups are fighting for the soul of the party. So that is the problem. So that's a, now the concentration or the focus of the majority party in government is not on the administration of the state, even on those priority issues. It is now elsewhere, where the, the key stakeholders are now engaged on partisan political party issues, which are internal to their political party. So that is a problem. That is a major problem that is actually facing the country. Because... That challenge has now become a national crisis because it has now affected even the normal operation of, of, of the institution of the state. So that is a challenge that we have. So the second one, we seem to be having a challenge of the resources. So you realize that the government itself seems to not be having a budget, a clear budget in terms of how it is going to support the reforms. So they depend, it depends on the donors, of which also the donors themselves don't necessarily have the resources available. They will have to go and look for the resources and seek the resources from their other colleagues elsewhere. So it takes the pressure to run slowly than it is expected. So those are the challenges that we have. Otherwise, there are issues of government, in non-accountability of the government, other issues of which are normal, issues of the concerns of the people, people which are not have not been addressed in the quite a long period of time. So those are the three things that one can identify as the major challenges which uh, undermine the reforms and also which have contributed to the challenge that the reforms hitherto have not been completed. The party of former Deputy Prime Minister Mutejame Singh, the LCD, has put certain demands on the table, such as forming the Government of National Unity and releasing the accused soldiers, such as General Kamali. What's your opinion on that? Yes, the former deputy prime minister has uh, proposal or proposition during this uh, debate is that the government we should now consider formation, the formation of uh, government of humanity as an option or a condition to take the reforms forward. Yes, in fact, majority of the opposition parties they have the demand which they have tabled, of which they are saying some of those demand is the release of amnesty of of the former commander and his colleagues uh, who are still in custody. Uh, yes, those, those, those issues are there, but the reception of the majority of people seems not to be positive on, on that idea, because people are saying, no, some of the people which are now beginning to believe this, this other opinion is that the reforms don't, don't necessarily need the government's unanimity. They only need an arrangement and a stability. So the, the purpose of the mentality seems to be fading or meeting with challenges of other parties to, to take it up because even in the, in, in the opposition, 
some of the parties, they don't look at that as an option. Some are actually saying, yes, if the motion of no confidence succeeds, they, they don't mind if they go, we go for, for, for fresh elections. Some are saying, no, we don't need to go to elections. So there are still ideas on the marketplace. So that issue has not yet been finalized. It's still part, just part of the debate in the public space, in the public debate. That is Sikwane Peshwane, Director of Transformation of the Resource Center in Lesotho, on the line speaking there to Ilitongo Riep. That brings us to 16 minutes after 5 Central African time. Let's take a short break here on Channel Africa. We're back after this. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment. To our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLeg to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I've tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Welcome back. It's almost 18 minutes after 5 Central African time. Thank you very much for staying with us. Remember, you can keep in touch with us. We are online on Ed Channel Africa 1 on Twitter, Ed Channel Africa, the numerical 1 on Twitter. And remember, on WhatsApp, it's plus 2776-337-330-3327. My name is Leander Maume. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. And remember, our host, Samara Mangesi, is not in for today. Government workers in Zimbabwe have expressed anxiety over new salaries, which were promised by President Emerson Mnangagwa end of June. Mnangagwa intervened following a salary dispute between government and civil servants such that a 10-day ultimatum was issued. A few days ahead of the expiry of the ultimatum, government workers are beginning to panic as Mnangagwa is yet to act on his promise to adjust salaries by early July. Simon Muchema reports. He's in Harare. Zimbabwe could be heading for a shutdown between government workers and the executive over salary dispute. For more than a year, government workers have been blowing hot and cold regarding their demands to have salaries adjusted in line with the inflation rate. However, when a 300,000-strong civil service threatened to down tools end of June, President Emerson Nangagwa intervened and promised to resolve the matter early July. Workers' representatives issued a 10-day ultimatum which is expiring this Friday. Time is moving fast, but Mnangagwa is yet to respond to the demands by government workers who are complaining their salaries have lost significant value and are no longer sustainable. Dr. Mtabisi Bebe, Secretary General of the Zimbabwe Hospital Doctors Association, had this to say. great Zimbabwe Hospital Doctors Association, our demand was just one, that our salaries should be paid in United States dollars because the market was demanding United States dollars. Everything was now being charged in United States dollars. But in view of the yeah, new development in respect to that, uh, now the US dollar has been seized out of market. 
which means actually this was done just to remove our demand for US dollars. You know, our view that's what exactly why this product was then promulgated. So right now we're left with an option that our salaries now should be paid in a rate that is uh, appropriate uh, in interbank rate. But of not prices right now, they are being charged at very high prices, not really according to the interbank. They are charging higher than the interbank rate. So it's now another problem. But our demand from the way to go was that our salaries in the United States And because our government is very cunning, they decided to remove the United States dollars in the market. While some workers are demanding salaries to be paid in local currency with adjustments at the current bank exchange rate against the U.S. dollar, another group of workers want payment in U.S. dollars. They argue that their current salaries were pegged in U.S. dollars during the inclusive government and is no longer the case today. Zimbabwe Nurses Association President Inokdongo complained. The 10-day period that was given, it was said they are going to announce the adjustment within 10 days. So we still hope and believe that the government is going to announce the adjustment effects on 1 July for the expired of 10 days. What we did is actually not the same per se. Since we have done a follow-up, verbal follow-up with the Minister of Health, who indicated that in the that cabinet has directed that Minister of Finance quickly complete whatever the competition that they are doing as far as the adjustment is concerned and announce it to the workers. So when the Minister of Health was saying, uh, expect the announcement anytime this week. Early last week, government promulgated a statute that outlaws the use of U.S. dollars and other currencies in Zimbabwe, opting for monocurrents, the Zimbabwe dollar. Withdrawals of U.S. dollars from the foreign current accounts are now restricted and that has helped with the reduction of exchange rates. However, government workers are worried that President Mnangagwa's silence could be breeding anxiety among his government workers. If not addressed, the salary dispute could degenerate into a government showdown. Zimbabwe Teachers Association Zimta Secretary General Nganunus Banda said. Well, what happened is that the government accepted our flight first and foremost as civil servants. That the situation is unbearable on the ground. Now, as we address we're addressing the state president, now, he also gave in, he accepted the reply, and he asked for seven days to look into the matter and address it. So we are waiting for that position. We allowed that seven days for him to go and work out whatever the question is. We couldn't come up with a figure at that moment because at that level, we definitely don't determine figure. What we're expecting is that we see this. Ten days we expect the NDNC to meet National Joint Negotiation Council and deliberate on the topic that is going to be given to us. But to our surprise, up to now, the NDNC hasn't convened yet. So we are also disappointed in that. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Addiction, whether involving substance abuse or behavioral addictions, frequently manifests together with psychiatric conditions such as depression, anxiety or mood disorders. They have however traditionally been treated separately. 
As the country marks Mental, mental Health Awareness Month, Janine Dana, a clinical psychologist at the Psychiatric Hospital Clinic in Albertin in South Africa's Gauteng province, speaks about the relationship between addiction and mental health. Very often we see substance use disorders and addiction occurring together with a psychiatric condition. And it's often, you know, chicken egg situation, which ones come first? Is it the psychiatric condition, for example, untreated depression, anxiety, that's now resulted in an addiction? Or is it the other way around? The addiction or the substance use disorder is now, you know, resulting in a psychiatric condition like depression, anxiety, or another mood disorder. So it's often hard to know which ones come first, but we often see the two of them occurring together, a substance use disorder or an addictive disorder together with some other psychiatric condition. So what are the differences in effects when it comes to addiction and psychiatric conditions or mental issues? Well, I would say they obviously all affect your functioning, but addiction can make the psychiatric condition worse. So if the addiction is not treated, then the psychiatric condition could become worse. So at Akiso, we offer a dual diagnosis treatment where we treat both the substance use disorder or the addictive disorder together with a psychiatric condition. So, you know, ensuring that both components are treated and not just the, the addictive or the substance disorder on its own. So in terms of symptoms then, will they also mm. be clear when it comes to addiction versus mental health issues? Well, there's obviously a, a different set of symptoms for addiction. So, you know, things to look out for are things like your life becoming unmanageable because of the use of a substance or being involved in the addictive behavior, being preoccupied with the addictive substance or behavior, trying to cut down on the addictive substance or behavior, not being able to, feeling anxious or stressed at the prospect of not having access to the addictive drug or activity. So those would be, you know, symptoms that one would experience with a substance use or an addictive disorder. Whereas with other psychiatric conditions, you know, the symptoms for depression and anxiety would obviously be different. So the effects can be similar in terms of affecting different areas or the same areas of your life, affecting your functioning. But certainly there are different sets of symptoms that constitute substance or addictive disorders versus depression and anxiety or other mood disorders. So what are examples of other addictive disorders that you see apart from, you know, drugs and alcohol, Mm. which we normally focus on, that also have devastating consequences? Yes. So the, obviously the drugs and alcohol are substance use disorders, but then there are also behavioral addictions such as gambling, sex, pornography addiction, um, eating addiction. We're actually also seeing quite a lot of online gaming addictions. So yeah, it's, it's not just the substance use addictions or, or substance addictions, it's also the behavioral addictions that we see. So at what point then does somebody say, now I need to get help? So I think when one's life becomes unmanageable, I mean, and this can manifest in many different ways, but typically when one's experiencing negative consequences or negative effects, for example, in the workplace, when it starts negatively affecting one's work, one's family life, one's social relationships, you know, that's a, a big indication that one needs to get help. That is Janine Dana, a clinical psychologist at the Psychiatric Hospital Clinic in Albertine in South Africa's Gauteng province, talking there to Asanda Peta.
The United Nations World Food Program, WFP, is scaling up assistance in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo following renewed inter- inter-ethnic violence. In Ebola-afflicted Ituri province, where a resurgence of clashes has claimed at least 160 lives in recent weeks, WFP intends to triple to 3,000 300,000 the number of internally displaced people it supports with life-saving food and cash. Many of the newly displaced are malnourished and have been forced to move numerous times. More from WFP's Jacques David. Indeed, we are ramping up an already sizable relief operation in Ituri province. So, uh, due to renewed inter-ethnic violence. Uh, This has forced tens of thousands of people away from their home. You know, they had to uh, run for their lives and uh, with little or nothing with them, they had to run away from their villages. And so now basically most of them, they don't have anything to eat. So we have to a new emergency operation in addition to the one we had started last year because we intend to triple our assistance and reach 300,000 internally displaced people in the coming uh, Ituri province. So you are currently focusing on those who have left their homes, those who have been displaced. Are they in displacement camps? Where have they fled to? Well, um, actually, there are several waves of people currently displacing and having moved, uh, having been forced to move from their villages. Uh, And the different areas are in Bunya town, but they are also fleeing into the bush, into smaller villages where they seek for shelters, where they seek for security. And we have to find them wherever they might find refuge. Now, given the situation in Eastern DRC, the security, it's a very volatile um, area. How is it for aid organizations to operate? I mean, like the WFP, are you managing to carry out operations freely? Yes, of course. Uh, The insecurity situation is compounding our assistance, but we are still able to operate. I mean, we have to assess the situation daily and see whether it is the right moment, the right day, the right hour to send the new trucks with food to this place or to another place. So we have to be very careful, but we we, we can make it. And someday we have to postpone to the next day and things like that. But uh, globally, we are able to operate Uh, and taking many security measures, of course. Now, with regards to the Ebola, which we know it's still a big problem, what is the WFP doing in that regard and what are your concerns? Yeah, so actually, Ituri province, where you have these new ways of uh, internally displaced people, is just the neighboring province of North Kivu, where you have a very active Ebola outbreak. Uh, But in Ituri province, the Ebola outbreak is much less severe. Uh, You have some cases indeed, uh, so we have to be very careful in our operations as well, um, because the more uh, people are moving, the more people are getting displaced, the more risky uh, is the situation uh, regarding this Ebola outbreak. Fortunately, uh, this virus is not transmittable by air, so uh, um, 
it's still manageable, of course. Jacques, thank you so much for giving us that update. Is there anything that you would like to add? Uh, well, you know, the best thing we can say is that these people, uh, they've been displaced several times in the recent years for this kind of inter-ethnic uh, violence. So the best thing for them is the return of stability, the return of security and peace so that they can go back to their villages, uh, do the harvest they were supposed to do this month, and so that they can feed themselves and, and enjoy a peaceful life. Uh, that's the very, very important thing now. That is Jacques David of the United Nations World Food Programme on the line from Goma in the Democratic Republic of Congo talking there to Jane Rabotata. Let's go to your news headlines. It's 28 minutes before 6 Central African time. Here's Onel Nzinzi. Eleven people have been killed in an attack by an Islamist militant armed group in northern Mozambique. The UN Security Council will hold an emergency meeting to discuss an airstrike on a detention center in Libya. And South Sudan steps up surveillance along its southern border after an Ebola case was detected just inside DR Congo. Channel Africa News, I am Onelinsinsi. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa, a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. It's approaching 26 minutes before 6 Central African time. You are still with Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we continue to give you news from an African perspective. My name is Luyanda Maume. I am your standing host for today. Samara Mangesi is out for the day. It's bigger than Snapchat and Twitter, but if you are not a teenager, you may never have heard of TikTok. It's the fastest growing social media app in the world, but has now promised to make changes to its policies after a BBC investigation found young people and children feeling exploited into sending money to popular creators on the app. The so-called gift baiting is happening during live broadcasts and some fans are sending hundreds of pounds in digital gifts in exchange for promises or attention from their favorite stars. The BBC's cybersecurity reporter Joe Tidy has more. Rainbow, one more, and I film you direct live. And Anthony, thank you for two concerts. Stumbling into a TikTok live stream can be bewildering, but once you learn the shorthand and jargon, it's clear TikTok celebrities are effectively selling their attention. Remember, if you are the next person to click that gift box and send a concert, you get a follow. If you send a concerts, concert, rainbow pukes, and pandas are all the names of gifts. These animated cartoons pop up on screen during live streams, highlighting the gifter's username. The little ones cost pennies, but the biggest one, called a drama queen, costs users £49. Oh, the drama queen! Thank you for the drama queen! TikTokers are taking home half of all donations. 
And despite having well over 500 million users, the platform doesn't have any guidelines about what can and cannot be offered in exchange for gifts. Yo, if you drop another John Gwynn, yeah, I'll speak to you on Instagram for a week straight. Shout-outs, video collaborations and follow-backs are all common, but some fans feel exploited by the more extreme and persuasive sales techniques being used. We spoke to a 12-year-old girl from the northwest of England who didn't want our interview to be broadcast. You gave uh, a TikToker £100 uh, during one live. The perk being offered by her favourite TikToker was his phone number. But she says he's only replied to a few messages and has never answered her calls. Boom, 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 boom. Oh, I'm giving her my number right now. And Sebastian Moy didn't respond to our requests for comment. Yeah, thank you so much for the drama queen. And, then we're gonna... and she's not the only one who's given big gifts to TikTokers. I think in the end it was about 400 by the time it was all said and done. Stephanie Barber blames TikTokers for persuading her 11-year-old daughter to rack up the bill over two live streams. Adults should know better and even other teenagers and that should know better that you don't ask essentially children for mm. money. TikTok has a minimum age of 13, but it's widely accepted that many of its 500 million users are underage. No, no, one more tap, one more tap. The Nafati brothers are TikTokers on the up with 2.5 million fans. From their Blackburn home, the 25-year-old twins record their dancing and comedy videos. When they go live, they ask for drama queen gifts worth £49 in exchange for followbacks. They also promise to write fans' names on their heads in pen if they send multiple drama queens. An average live stream earns them around £250. Most of our gifters are like 30 to 45. So how do you feel that sometimes the people that are giving you gifts are very young? Well, we don't like it when our gifters are young. So basically, we ask them if their parents know about it. But we can't stop them. We can't stop them. We are going on live not only for the money. We are going on the live to get more audience. As well as fans buying gifts for creators, there's another group making money from TikTok users. I was approached repeatedly by an anonymous account. He asked me to send him gifts in exchange for likes on my videos. Clearly, preying on the common desire many fans on the app have to become famous themselves. Send a drama queen, the £49 gift, and he'll get his team to artificially boost my popularity on the site. TikTok says it's sorry to hear about some of the experiences we documented. Thank you so much for the drama queen. If you say one more, you get my number, OK? In light of our investigation, a spokesperson said they will further strengthen the platform's policies and features. That report there by the BBC's Joe Tidy on that rather shocking story about this new uh, social media app. It's called TikTok. I suggest if you've got kids, you must check it out so that you educate yourself about what your kids get up to on their smartphones. Do, 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 do check it out. It's called TikTok, T-I-K-T-O-K, T-I-K-T-O-K. Check it out so that you can be able to keep your kids protected on their smartphones. It's uh, 19 minutes uh, before 6 Central African time. Let's take a short break. We're back after this. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment 
more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netlec to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Welcome back. It's 20 minutes before 6 Central African time. Remember, still to come, it's your economics update with Tracy Pumgat, as well as your sports with Neto Chamani. In Senegal, as in many countries in West Africa, soap operas are hugely popular. According to a study by Mediametri, an institution that measures TV audiences, a 24-hour soap opera station is the third most watched TV channel in Francophone Africa. Early this year, the Senegalese program, Mistress of a Married Man, sparked controversy when one character spoke openly about her sexual choices. The BBC's Arwa Bakala reports from Dakar. Maîtresse d'un homme marié follows the lives of five female leads as they navigate life and love in Dakar's upper class. The heroine, Marem Dial, played by actress Khalima Gaji, has an affair with a married man and ends up becoming his second wife. The show has never shied away from controversial topics, but early this year it stirred debate when in one scene, Marem points her crutch and proclaims, This thing is mine. I give it to whoever I want. The scene sets Senegalese social media alight with debates about whether the series should continue or not. Senegal is a majority Muslim country with more conservative attitudes towards sex. The conservative association Jamra believes that TV channels failed in their responsibility to provide content advisory on the primetime broadcast. Mam Maktargay is the head of the traditional body. We are not blaming the series itself because adultery is a real issue in Senegal and everybody here can relate to this. But where they actually fell in the scenario, when you see that it is apology of fornication, uh, promoting adultery, vulgarity, and verbal porn. Calista C is the producer of the TV show. She produces multiple soap operas, but Mistress of a Married Man is the first one in Senegal written by a woman. For her, the series' success is a reflection of society's changing attitudes. Our intention is to be true to the issues that we deal with. It is impossible not to shock people with women's stories in every aspect of life. We have feedback from women beyond Senegal's borders who can relate to our show. So obviously I can understand people will talk about this series in negative ways. Kader Gaji plays the villain in the series. His character is seen cheating on his wife during his day at work and hurls abusive insults at her when he returns home. Silen? 
it's Gadji's first leading role and success on TV. He's often insulted in social media for his character's behavior, but he's proud to see that the series has had a positive influence on some viewers. I remember a battered woman who thanked me once. She wrote to me on Instagram saying that her husband raped her, battered her. My character is a bad boy, but my role made her realize the situation she was in. When she wrote me to explain that she decided to divorce, I told myself, at least I wasn't insulted in vain. Last month, the news of two women found dead after they were sexually assaulted sent shock waves through the country. Hundreds of women demonstrated in Dakar streets denouncing the fact that legally, rape is considered as an offense and not a crime. In such times, many feel that the hit series is hitting all the right notes. I tune it. Really, I love it. It's a series that reflects the story of the Senegalese. I never miss an episode, ever. I've not missed a single one. In Senegal, I find that we hide things too much. But the moment you bring them into the open, it helps teach lessons. I didn't watch this show initially, but my wife told me to watch it, and it is actually interesting. The actors are playing the reality of how society currently is in Senegal. After watching it, some of my friends have started to change their behavior at home. They have their woman at home now. Mistress of a Married Man airs twice a week with every episode on YouTube reaching 1.5 million views. The controversial series Frank portrayal of female attitudes toward love, sex and their own bodies has found an avid audience not only in Senegal but also in the rest of Francophone Africa and the diaspora. That report by the BBC's Arwa Pakala in Dakar brings us to 15 minutes before 6 Central African time. That means it's time for our economics update. Here's Tracy Pumgat. Thank you, Leander. Nigeria will sign the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement at the upcoming Extraordinary Summit of the African Union in Niger this weekend. Nigeria's presidency tweeted this on Tuesday evening. Sarah Kamani reports. A presidential committee set up by President Muhammadu Buhari in March last year to look into the impact and readiness and assessment of the treaty recommended that Nigeria sign the agreement. The presidency said the country would take advantage of the ongoing negotiations to secure the necessary safeguards against smuggling, dumping and other threats or risks. The agreement came into force in May. South Africa's electricity parastatal Eskom has confirmed that it has received payment for electricity to Zimbabwe. The power utility said it will continue discussions with the Zimbabwe Electricity Supply Authority to find a mutually beneficial solution to the outstanding debt. Eskom's confirmation comes after Zimbabwean Minister of Energy and Power Development Fortune Chasi earlier on Tuesday posted a screenshot of the neighboring country's about $10 million US payment to Eskom on Twitter. 
The South African Broadcasting Corporation's Chief Executive Officer, Madoda Nkakwe, says the challenges at the public broadcaster have reached crisis point. The SABC board appeared before Parliament's Portfolio Committee on Communications. It is seeking a government guarantee. Mkwakwe says while employee salaries are a priority, they do remain a big challenge, which has caused a ripple effect. He has emphasized that the SABC has managed to remain afloat because of its dedicated and competent staff. Salaries are a big issue because we're prioritizing salaries. It then takes away from the importance of investing in content. We cannot pay our suppliers. Uh, as a result, they cannot provide us with the required content uh, that we need. Not all is well. Uh, it is a crisis situation. The only reason we've been able to keep the SAPC afloat is really because of the commitment and uh, the dedication and the competencies of the employees of the SAPC. Bitcoin uses as much energy as the whole of Switzerland, a new online tool from the University of Cambridge shows. The tool makes it easier to see how the cryptocurrency network's energy usage compares with other entities. However, one expert argued that it was the cryptocurrency for carbon footprint that really mattered. Currently, the tool estimates that Bitcoin is using around 7 gigawatts of electricity, equal to 0.21% of the world's supply. The U.S. trade deficit has risen to its highest in five months, while the trade deficit with Mexico, a country President Donald Trump threatened with stinging tariffs, rose to its highest in a decade. The deficit now stands at more than $55 billion, from a revised $51.2 billion in April. The BBC's Andrew Walker reports. President Trump sees trade deficits as a sign that the United States is losing business to other countries and that those others are trading unfairly. The new figures show exports increasing but imports rising even more. That could partly be importers anticipating further moves by the Trump administration by stocking up ahead of possible increases in tariffs, trade taxes on goods from China. The U.S. dollar is trading at 359.25 Nigerian Naira, 10.52 Botswana Pula, at 101.83 Kenyan Shilling and at 12.85 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.84 Brazilian Hail, 63.17 Russian Ruble, 68.83 Indian Rupee, 6.86 Chinese Yuan and at 14.12 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 79 pence to the British pound and at 88 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,424 and platinum at $830 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $62.65 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Let's say thank you very much there to Tracy with that economics update. It brings us to 10 minutes before 6 Central African time. Let's get to your latest spots. Here's Neto Chamani. Thank you, Luyanda, from the sports desk. A very good afternoon. Starting off with football news. 
The draw for the 2019 Kosafa Senior Women's Championship took place at the Kosafa House in Johannesburg earlier today. This year's tournament will once again take place in South Africa's Eastern Cape province. Fresh from competing at their maiden FIFA Women's World Cup, South Africa's national women's football team is in Group A alongside Malawi, Comoros Island and Madagascar. Banyana Banyana head coach Desiree Ellis shared her thoughts on their group. Well, I don't think it's any, any game is easy. Um, we played Madagascar last year, and uh, if you remember, we narrowly beat them to one. Um, and uh, each and every team come to a next tournament, and they've grown. And hopefully, you know, what we've learned at the World Cup will, will help us going forward. Um, Malawi were in our group last year, but, um, you know, with the Chewinga sisters, they're a different team altogether. They really raised the level. Um, they've had a, a, a good start in, in playing some of their matches. And then you have the Comores, who we played in... Uh, I think it was 2014, um, and they would have grown as well. So you underestimate the team at your own peril, um, which we will definitely not do. Um, but it's another step for us to, to um, really grow the game. It's another step for us in uh, using the Kusafa to prepare, um, especially for the upcoming Olympic qualifiers. South Africa will come into this tournament as the team to watch after their exploits in France. But also they will be looking at defending their title on home soil. Coach Ellis says they need to show in this tournament why they were at the World Cup. The expectations are always there. Um, you know, um, being uh, uh, South Africa and being Bayana, um, being the defending champions, uh, people will want to knock you off your perch having gone to the World Cup. But we've got to show. Um, the experience that we've gained at the World Cup. we got to show why we were at the World Cup. we got to make sure that we go out there and give the fans um, a taste of what uh, we learned at the World Cup because otherwise the experience at the World Cup would be nothing. The Under-20 Women's Championship draw also took place earlier today. The inaugural tournament will run concurrently with the senior championships. In Group A, South Africa is drawn alongside Namibia, Zimbabwe and Malawi, whereas in Group B, Botswana faces Zambia, Tanzania and Eswatini. Victor Wanyama, captain of Kenya's national men's football team, says he is proud of his teammates despite their early exit from the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations Afcon in Egypt. Stars about out of the competition after suffering two losses in their Group C matches and their lone win over Tanzania was not enough to sail them into the round of 16 as one of the best four third-placed teams. Stars started their campaign with a 2-0 loss at the hands of Algeria following a disastrous first half before bouncing back with a sweet 3-2 victory over neighbours Tanzania in their second match. But it was a tie against Senegal in their final group match that delivered the devastating knockout as the team suffered a 3-0 loss, conceding three goals in 12 minutes after a series of mistakes. On to rugby news. Springbok captain Siakolisi will miss the team's opening match of the 2019 rugby championship as he continues his recovery from a knee injury. The box are due to host the Wallabies at Ellis Park in Johannesburg on Saturday, July the 20th, but will be searching for a new leader after coach Rasi Erasmus confirmed his star lose forward won't be fit for his first selection. Despite being sidelined since May after suffering the injury during the Stormers 
Thomas' Super Rugby campaign, Golisi was included in the Springboks training group in Pretoria late last month. At this stage, no replacement for Golisi as skipper has been confirmed, although his Thomas teammate, Iben Elizabeth, will be a strong candidate. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Itio Chemani. This is Africa Digest. At exactly five minutes before six Central African time, let's take a quick recap of your top stories now. The DRC's president describes violence in the northeastern province of Ituri as an attempted genocide. Government workers in Zimbabwe express anxiety over new salaries which were promised by President Emerson Nangagwa at the end of June. That brings us to the end of the show for this hour. From myself, your host, Ilianda Maume, technical producer, Wiseman Mangel, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. Let's play out at the music of Ringo Madlingozi featuring the late double HP. This one is called Zinodaga.